Section 20 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suprada Urval. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 20 Benares, Part 1. Departure from Calcutta. Entrance into the Ganges. Rajmahal, Gur, Junghera, Monghir, Patna, Denapur, Jessipur, Benares, Religion of the Hindus, Description of the Town, Palaces and Temples, The Holy Places, The Holy Apes, The Ruins of Saranth, An Indigo Plantation, A Visit to the Raja of Benares, Martyrs and Fakirs, The Indian Peasant, The Missionary Establishment, on the 10th of December, after a stay of more than five weeks, I left Calcutta for Benares. The journey may be performed either by land or else by water on the Ganges. By land, the distance is 470 miles. By water, 800 miles during the rainy season and 465 miles more during the dry months, as the boats are compelled to take very circuitous routes to pass from the Hooghly through the Sundarbans into the Ganges. The land journey is performed in post palanquins, carried by men who, like horses, are changed every four or six miles. The traveller proceeds by night as well as day, and at each station finds people ready to receive him, as a circular from the post office is always sent a day or two before to prepare them for his arrival. At night, the train is increased by the addition of a torch-bearer to scare off the wild beasts by the glare of his torch. The travelling expenses for one person are about 200 rupees, 20 pounds, independent of the luggage, which is reckoned separately. The journey by water can be accomplished in steamers, one of which leaves almost every week for Allahabad, 135 miles beyond Benares. The journey occupies from 14 to 20 days, as, on account of the numerous sandbanks, it is impossible for the vessel to proceed on her course except in the daytime. And even then, it is by no means unusual for her to run aground, especially when the water is low. The fares to Banaras are First cabin, 257 rupees, 25 pounds, 14 shillings. Second cabin, 216 rupees, 21 pounds, 12 shillings. Provisions, without wine or spirits, 3 rupees, 6 shillings a day. As I had heard so much of the magnificent banks of the Ganges and of the important towns situated on them, I determined to go by water. On the 8th of December, according to the advertisement, the steamer, General MacLeod, 140 horsepower, commanded by Captain Keller, was to leave her moorings. But on going on board, I received the gratifying intelligence that we should have to wait 24 hours, which 24 hours were extended to as much again, so that we did not actually set off before 11 o'clock on the morning of the 10th. We first proceeded down the stream to the sea as far as Kacheri, and on the following day we rounded Mud Point and entered the Sundarbans, where we beat about as far as Kalna. 
From there, we proceeded up the Guri, a large tributary stream flowing into the Ganges below Rumperbolia. During the first few days, the scenery was monotonous to the highest degree. There were neither towns nor villages to be seen. The banks were flat, and the prospect everywhere bounded by tall, thick bushes, which the English term jungles, that is to say, virgin forests. For my own part, I could see no virgin forests, as by this term I understand a forest of mighty trees. During the night, we heard, from time to time, the roaring of tigers. These animals are pretty abundant in these parts, and frequently attack the natives if they happen to remain out late wooding. I was shown the tattered fragment of a man's dress hung upon a bush to commemorate the fact of a native having been torn to pieces there by one of these beasts. But they are not the only foes that man has to dread here. The Ganges contains quite as deadly ones, namely the ravenous crocodiles. These may be seen in groups of six or eight sunning themselves on the slimy banks of the river or on the numerous sandbanks. They vary in length from six to fifteen feet. On the approach of the steamer, several started up, affrighted by the noise, and glided hastily into the dirty yellow stream. The different branches of the Sundarbans and the Guri are often so narrow that there is hardly room for two vessels to pass each other, while on the other hand they frequently expand into lakes that are miles across. In spite, too, of the precaution of only proceeding by day, on account of the numerous sandbanks and shallows, accidents are of frequent occurrence. We ourselves did not come off scot-free. In one of the narrow branches I have alluded to, while our vessel was stopped to allow another to pass, one of the two ships that we had in tow came with such violence against the steamer that the sides of a cabin were driven in. Luckily, however, no one was injured. In another arm of the river, two native vessels were lying at anchor. The crews were somewhat slow in perceiving us and had not time to raise their anchors before we came puffing up to them. The captain did not stop, as he thought there was room to pass, but turned the steamer's head so far inshore that he ran into the bushes, and left some of the blinds of the cabin windows suspended as trophies behind him, whereat he was so enraged that he immediately dispatched two boats to cut the poor creature's hawsers, thereby causing them to lose their anchors. This was another action worthy of a European. Near Kalna, 358 miles from the sea, we entered the Guri, a considerable tributary of the Ganges, which it flows into below Rumperbolia. The jungles here recede, and their place is occupied by beautiful plantations of rice and other vegetables. There was, too, no scarcity of villages, only the huts which were mostly built of straw and palm leaves, were small and wretched. The appearance of the steamer soon collected all the inhabitants who left their fields and huts and greeted it with loud huzzas. 15th December This evening we struck for the first time on a sandbank. It cost us some trouble before we could get off again. 16th December We had entered the Ganges yesterday, at a late hour this evening, we hove to near the little village of Komarkoli. 
inhabitants brought provisions of every description on board and we had an opportunity of becoming acquainted with the prices of the various articles a fine weather cost four rupees eight shillings eighteen fowls a rupee two shillings a fish weighing several pounds an anna one and a half dimes eight eggs an anna twenty oranges two annas three dimes a pound of fine bread three bays one dime and yet in spite of these ludicrously cheap prices the captain charged each passenger three rupees six shillings a day for his board which was not even possible many of the passengers made purchases here of eggs new bread and oranges and the captain was actually not ashamed to let these articles which were paid for out of our own pockets appear at his table that we all paid so dearly for 18th december bialya a place of considerable importance noted for the number of its prisons it is a depot for criminals who are sent here from all parts footnote 158 a at the period of my visit there were about 782 of them end of footnote the prisoners here cannot be so desirous of escaping as those in europe for i saw numbers of them very slightly ironed wandering about in groups or alone in the place itself and its vicinity without having any gaolers with them they are properly taken care of and employed in various kinds of light work there is a paper manufactory which is almost entirely carried on by them the inhabitants appeared to possess a more than usual degree of fanaticism i and another passenger herr lau had gone to take a walk in the place and were about to enter a small street in which there was a hindu temple but no sooner however did the people perceive our intention than they set up a horrible yelling and pressed on us so closely that we held it advisable to restrain our curiosity and turn back 19th december today we perceived the low ranges of the rajmahal hills the first we had seen since we left madras in the evening we were again stuck fast upon a sandbank we remained tolerably quiet during the night but as soon as it was morning every possible means were adopted to get us off again the vessels we had in tow were cast off our steam got up to its highest pitch the sailors too exerted themselves indefatigably and at noon we were stuck just as fast as we were the evening before about this time we perceived a steamer on its way from allahabad to calcutta but our captain hoisted no signals of distress being very much vexed that he should be seen by a comrade in such a position the captain of the other vessel however offered his assistance of his own accord but his offer was coldly and curtly refused and it was not until after several hours of the most strenuous exertion that we succeeded in getting off the bank into deep water in the course of the day we touched at rajmahal a large village which on account of the thick woods and numerous swamps and morasses around it is reckoned a most unhealthy place footnote 158b rajmahal was in the 17th century the capital of bengal end of footnote it was here that gur one of the largest towns of india once stood 
it is said to have been twenty square miles in extent and to have contained about two millions of inhabitants and according to the latest books of travels the most splendid and considerable ruins are still to be seen there those of the so-called golden mosque are especially remarkable being very fine and faced with marble the gateways are celebrated for their great width of span and the solidity of their side walls as there was fortunately a depot for coals here we were allowed a few hours to do as we liked the younger passengers seized the opportunity to go out shooting being attracted by the splendid forests the finest i had as yet seen in india it was certainly reported that they were very much infested with tigers but this deterred no one i also engaged in the chase although it was one of a different description i penetrated far and wide through the forest and swamp in order to discover the ruins i was successful but how meagre and wretched they were the most important were those of two common city gates built of sandstone and ornamented with a few handsome sculptures but without any arches or cupolas one inconsiderable temple with four corner towers was in several places covered with very fine cement besides these there were a few other ruins or single fragments of buildings and pillars scattered around but all of them together do not cover a space of two square miles on the border of the forest or some hundred paces farther in were situated a number of huts belonging to the natives approached by picturesque paths running beneath shady avenues of trees in bialia the people were very fanatic while here the men were very jealous at the conclusion of my excursion one of the gentlemen passengers had joined me and we directed our steps towards the habitations of the natives as soon as the men saw my companion they called out to their wives and ordered them to take refuge in the huts the women ran in from all directions but remained very quietly at the doors of their dwellings to see us pass and quite forgot to conceal their faces while they did so in these parts there are whole woods of cocoa palms this tree is properly a native of india where it attains a height of eighty feet and bears fruit in its sixth year in other countries it is scarcely fifty feet high and does not bear fruit before it is twelve or fifteen years old this tree is perhaps the most useful one in the known world it produces large and nutritious fruit excellent milk large leaves that are used for covering in and roofing huts materials for strong cordage the clearest oil for burning mats woven stuffs coloring matter and even a kind of drink called sur toddy or palm brandy and obtained by incisions made in the crown of the tree to which during an entire month the hindus climb up every morning and evening making incisions in the stem and hanging pots underneath to catch the sap which oozes out the rough condition of the bark facilitates considerably the task of climbing up the tree the hindus tie a strong cord round the trunk and their own body and another round their feet which they fix firmly against the tree they then raise themselves up drawing the upper rope with their hands and the lower one with the points of their feet after them i have seen them climb the highest trees in this manner 
with the greatest ease in two minutes at the most. Round their bodies they have a belt to which are suspended a knife and one or two small jars. The sap is at first quite clear and agreeably sweet, but begins in six or eight hours' time to ferment, and then assumes a whitish tint, while its flavor becomes disagreeably acid. From this, with the addition of some rice, is manufactured strong arrack. A good tree will yield above a gallon of the sap in four and twenty hours, but during the year in which the sap is thus extracted, it bears no fruit. 21st December About 80 miles below Rajmahal, we passed three rather steep rocks rising out of the Ganges. The largest is about 60 feet high. The next in size, which is overgrown with bushes, is the residence of a fakir, whom the true believers supply with provisions. We could not see the holy man, as it was beginning to grow dark as we passed. This, however, did not cause us so much regret as that we were unable to visit the botanical garden at Bogalpur, which is said to be the finest in all India. But as there was no coal depot at Bogalpur, we did not stop. On the 22nd of December, we passed the remarkable mountain scenery of Jungera, which rises like an island of rocks from the majestic Ganges. This spot was in former times looked on as the holiest in the whole course of the river. Thousands of boats and larger vessels were constantly to be seen there, as no Hindu believed he could die in peace without having visited the place. Numerous fakirs had established themselves here, strengthening the poor pilgrims with unctuous exhortations and taking in return their pious gifts. The neighborhood has, however, at present, lost its reputation for sanctity and the offerings received are scarcely sufficient to maintain two or three fakirs. In the evening, we stopped near Monghir, a tolerably large town with some old fortifications. Footnote 160a Monghir is termed the Birmingham of India on account of its extensive manufactories of cutlery and weapons. Its population is about 30,000 souls. End of footnote. The most conspicuous object is a cemetery, crowded with monuments. The monuments are so peculiar that had I not seen similar ones in the cemeteries of Calcutta, I should never have imagined that they belonged to any sect of Christians. There were temples, pyramids, immense catafalques, kiosks, etc., all massively built of tiles. The extent of the cemetery is quite disproportioned to the number of Europeans in Monghir, but the place is said to be the most unhealthy in India, so that when a European is ordered there for any number of years, he generally takes a last farewell of all his friends. Six miles hence, there are some hot springs, which are looked upon by the natives as sacred. We had lost sight of the Rajmahal hills at Bogalpur. On both sides of the river, nothing was now to be seen but an uninterrupted succession of flat plains. 24th December Patna, one of the largest and most ancient cities of Bengal, with a population of about 300,000 souls, consists of a long, broad street, eight miles long, with numerous short alleys running into it. Footnote 160b. Patna is the capital of the province of Bechar, and was once celebrated for the number of its Buddhist temples. 
near patna was situated the most famous town of ancient india namely parlibotra patna contains a great many cotton and a few opium factories and a footnote footnote 161 in all indian mahomedan and in fact all countries which are not christian it is a very difficult task to obtain anything like an exact calculation of the number of inhabitants as nothing is more hateful to the population than such computations and a footnote the houses which are mostly constructed of mud struck me as particularly small and wretched under the projecting roofs are exposed for sale goods and provisions of the simplest kind that part of the street in which the greatest number of these miserable shops are situated is dignified by the grand name of the bazaar the few houses of a better description might easily be counted without any very great trouble they are built of tiles and surrounded by wooden galleries and colonnades prettily carved in these houses were to be found the best and finest shops the temples of the hindus the ghats flights of steps halls and gateways on the ganges like the mosques of the mahomedans always look a great deal better at a distance than they do on a nearer inspection the only objects worthy of notice which i saw here were a few bell-shaped mausoleums like those in ceylon which they greatly surpassed in size although not in artistic beauty they were certainly more than 200 feet in circumference and 80 feet in height excessively narrow entrances with simple doors conduct into the interior on the outside two small flights of steps forming a semicircle lead up to the top the doors were not opened for us and we were obliged to content ourselves with the assurance that with the exception of a small plain sarcophagus there was nothing inside patna is a place of great importance from the trade in opium by which many of the natives acquire large fortunes as a general rule they make no display of their riches either as regards their clothes or in any other public kind of luxury there are only two sorts of dress one for those in easy circumstances which is like that of the orientals and one for the poorest classes which consists of a piece of cloth bound round the loins the principal street presents a bustling appearance being much frequented by carriages as well as pedestrians the hindus like the jews are such determined foes to walking that they do not think the worst place in the most wretched cart beneath their acceptance the vehicles in most general use are narrow wooden cars upon two wheels and composed of four posts with cross beams colored woolen stuff is hung over these and a kind of canopy keeps off the sun there is properly only room for two persons although i have seen three or four crowded into them this puts me in mind of the italians who fill a carriage so that not even the steps are left vacant these cars are called bailey they are closely curtained when women travel in them i expected to see the streets here full of camels and elephants since i had read so much about it in some descriptions but i saw only baileys drawn by oxen and a few horsemen but neither camels nor elephants towards evening we drove to dinapur which is 8 miles from patna along an excellent post road planted with handsome trees footnote 162 
I landed with two travellers at Patna and rode on to Dainapur in the evening, where our steamer anchored for the night. End of footnote. Dainapur is one of the largest English military stations and contains extensive barracks, which almost constitute a town in themselves. The town is but a short distance from the barracks. There are many Mahomedans among the inhabitants who surpass the Hindus in industry and perseverance. I here saw elephants for the first time on the Indian continent. In a sarai outside the town, there were eight large, handsome animals. When we returned to the ship in the evening, we found it like a camp. All kinds of articles were brought there and laid out for inspection, but the shoemakers were particularly numerous. Their work appeared neat and lasting and remarkably cheap. A pair of men's boots, for example, cost from one and a half to two rupees, three shillings to four shillings. But it is true that twice as much is always asked for them. I saw on this occasion the way in which the European sailors conduct bargains with the natives. One of the engineers wanted to buy a pair of shoes and offered a quarter of the price asked. The seller, not consenting to this, took his goods back. But the engineer snatched them out of his hand, threw down a few base more than what he had offered, and hastened to his cabin. The shoemaker pursued him and demanded the shoes back, instead of which he received several tough blows, and was threatened that if he was not quiet, he should be compelled to leave the ship immediately. The poor creature returned half crying to his pack of goods. A similar occurrence took place on the same evening. A Hindu boy brought a box for one of the travellers and asked for a small payment for his trouble. He was not listened to. The boy remained standing by, repeating his request now and then. He was driven away, and as he would not go quietly, blows were had recourse to. The captain happened to pass accidentally and asked what was the matter. The boy, sobbing, told him. The captain shrugged his shoulders, and the boy was put out of the ship. How many similar and even more provoking incidents have I seen? The so-called barbarian and heathen people have good reason to hate us. Wherever the Europeans go, they will not give any reward, but only orders and commands, and their rule is generally much more oppressive than that of the natives. 26th December the custom of exposing dying people on the banks of the Ganges does not appear to be so general as some travellers state. We sailed on the river for fourteen days, during which time we passed many thickly populated towns and villages, and did not meet with a single case until today. The dying man lay close to the water, and several men, probably his relations, were seated round him awaiting his decease. One dipped water and mud out of the river with his hands and put them to the nose and mouth of the dying man. The Hindus believe that if they die at the river with their mouths full of the holy water, they are quite certain to go to heaven. His relations or friends remain by the dying man till sunset, when they go home and leave him to his fate. He generally falls a prey to crocodiles. I very seldom saw any floating corpses, only two during the whole journey. Most of the corpses are burnt. 27th December Ghazipur is an important place, 
and is remarkable at a distance for its handsome ghats. Here stands a pretty monument erected to the memory of Lord Cornwallis, who conquered Tipu Saib in seventeen ninety. Very near is a large establishment for training horses, which is said to turn out remarkably fine ones. But Ghazipur is most remarkable for its enormous rose fields and the rose water and attar prepared here. The latter is obtained in the following manner. Upon forty pounds of roses with the calyxes, sixty pounds of water are poured, and the whole is distilled over a slow fire. From this, about thirty pounds of rose water are obtained. Another forty pounds of roses are again added to this, and, at the utmost, twenty pounds of water distilled off. This is then exposed during the night to the cold air in pans, and in the morning the oil is found swimming upon the surface and is skimmed off. Not more than an ounce and a half of attar, at the utmost, is obtained from eighty pounds of roses. An ounce of true attar costs, even in Ghazipur, forty rupees, four pounds. At ten o'clock on the morning of the twenty-eighth, we at length reached the holy town of Benares. We anchored near Rajgat, where coolies and camels were ready to receive us. Before taking leave of the Ganges, I must remark that during the whole journey of about a thousand miles, I did not meet with a single spot remarkable for its especial beauty or one picturesque view. The banks are either flat or bounded by layers of earth ten or twenty feet in height, and further inland sandy plains alternate with plantations or dried-up meadows and miserable jungles. There are, indeed, a great number of towns and villages, but with the exception of occasional handsome houses and the ghats, they are composed of a collection of huts. The river itself is frequently divided into several branches and is sometimes so broad that it resembles a sea rather than a river, for the banks are scarcely visible. Benares is the most sacred town of India. It is to the Hindus what Mecca is to the Mohammedans or Rome to the Catholics. The belief of the Hindus in its holiness is such that, according to their opinion, every man will be saved who remains twenty-four hours in the town without reference to his religion this noble toleration is one of the finest features in the religion and character of this people and puts to shame the prejudices of many christian sects the number of pilgrims amounts annually to three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand and the town is one of the most wealthy in the country through their trading sacrifices and gifts this may not be an improper place to make some remarks upon the religion of these interesting people, which I extract from Zimmerman's Handbook of Travels. The foundation of the Hindu faith is the belief in a superior primitive being, immortality, and a reward of virtue. The chief idea of God is so great and beautiful, its moral so pure and elevated, that its equal has not been found among any other people. Their creed is to worship the highest being, to invoke their guardian gods, to be well disposed towards their fellow men, to pity the unfortunate and help them, to bear patiently the inconveniences of life, not to lie or break their word, to read the sacred histories and to give heed to them, 
not to talk much, to fast, pray, and to bathe at stated periods. These are the general duties which the sacred writings of the Hindus enforce, without exception, upon all castes or sects. Their true and only God is called Brahma, which must not be confounded with Brahma who was created by the former, who is the true, eternal, holy, and unchangeable light of all time and space. The wicked are punished and the good rewarded. Out of the eternal being proceeded the goddess Bhavani, that is nature, and a host of 1,180 million spirits. Among these, there are three demigods or superior spirits, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the Hindu trinity called by them Trimurti. For a long time, happiness and content prevailed, but they afterwards revolted, and many gave up their allegiance. The rebels were cast down from on high into the pit of darkness. Hereupon succeeded the transmigration of souls. Every animal and every plant was animated by one of the fallen angels, and the remarkable amiability of the Hindus towards animals is owing to this belief. They look upon them as their fellow creatures and will not put any of them to death. The Hindu reverences the great purpose of nature, the production of organized bodies, in the most disinterested and pious manner. Everything tending to this end is to him venerable and holy, and it is in this respect alone that he worships the lingam. It may be affirmed that the superstitions of this creed have only gradually become an almost senseless delusion through corruption and misunderstanding. In order to judge of the present state of their religion, it will be sufficient to describe the figures of a few of their chief deities. Brahma, as the creator of the world, is represented with four human heads and eight hands. In one hand he holds the scriptures, in the others various idols. He is not worshipped in any temple, having lost this prerogative on account of his ambitious desire to find out the supreme being. However, after repenting of his folly, it was permitted that the Brahmins might celebrate some festivals in his honor, called Pootche. Vishnu, as the maintainer of the world, is represented in 21 different forms. Half fish, half man, as tortoise, half lion, half man, Buddha, dwarf, etc. The wife of Vishnu is worshipped as the goddess of fruitfulness, plenty and beauty. The cow is considered sacred to her. Shiva is the destroyer, revenger, and the conqueror of death. He has, therefore, a double character, beneficent or terrible, rewards or punishes. He is generally hideously represented, entirely surrounded by lightning, with three eyes, the largest of which is in the forehead. He has also eight arms, in each of which he holds something. Although these three deities are equal, the religion of the Hindus is divided into only two sects, the worshippers of Vishnu and those of Shiva. Brahma has no peculiar sect since he is denied temples and pagodas. However, the whole priestly caste, the Brahmins, may be considered as his worshippers since they affirm that they proceeded from his head. The worshippers of Vishnu have on their foreheads a red or yellowish painted sign of the jani, the Shiva worshippers the sign of the lingam or an obelisk, triangle or the sun. 
333 million subordinate deities are recognized. They control the elements, natural phenomena, the passions, acts, diseases, etc. They are represented in different forms and having all kinds of attributes. There are also genie, good and evil spirits. The number of the good exceeds that of the bad by about 3 million. Other objects are also considered sacred by the Hindus as rivers, especially the Ganges, which is believed to have been formed from the sweat of Shiva. The water of the Ganges is so highly esteemed that a trade is carried on in it for many miles inland. Among animals, they chiefly look upon the cow, ox, elephant, ape, eagle, swan, peacock and serpent as sacred. Among plants, the lotus, the banana and the mango tree. The Brahmins have an especial veneration for a stone, which is, according to Sonarat, a fossil ammonite in slate. It is in the highest degree remarkable that there is no representation of the supreme being to be found in all Hindustan. The idea appears too great for them. They consider the whole earth as his temple and worship him under all forms. The adherents of Shiva bury their dead. The others either burn them or throw them into the river. End of section 20 Recording by Supradha Urwal from Saratoga, California